G'day sports fans, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports by Fry podcast. Coming at you on Monday evening, happy WA day to all the sand gropers out there. Who doesn't love a fucking long weekend smack bang in the middle of the year? Sport is the topic of today's podcast for a change. Uh, there's plenty of basketball news, a little bit of uh, tennis stuff, second Grand Slam of the year just wrapped up, and another weekend of footy is in the books. Plenty of fantasy relevant bits and pieces surfacing after the weekend. The large fries and cokes still going all right, and obviously it's a great time to be a Fremantle Dockers fan. I'll be doing my big weekly sit-down with J-Lo on Wednesday, and I'm sure throughout Wednesday's episode we'll discuss the Purple Haze quite heavily, but a couple of things that I want to touch on, not all Fremantle orientated in the AFL, so let's not waste any time and dive right into today's episode. I'm bringing back the top five, the artist formerly known as Fry's Fast Fives. So Monday and Friday podcasts, there's going to be five headlines that I want to kind of burn through that'll make up the bulk of the episode starting on today's episode I can't go past game two of the NBA finals we're locked at one apiece Golden State flexed their muscle at the Chase Center and took care of business against Boston which was always really going to happen let's be honest we didn't expect a huge blowout in this series I didn't anyway I thought that there would be punches thrown by both sides over the course of seven and credit to Golden State they responded and they responded in pretty emphatic fashion. Once again, it was a big run in the third quarter that fueled their game two victory. Through two games so far, they've outscored Boston 73 to 38 in third quarters. So maybe something uh, worth watching. Traditionally, we've seen this Dub Nation team catch fire when they start the second half right in that third period. So I'll be very intrigued to see if they can keep that momentum going and how their third quarter scoring sprees unfold at the TD Garden when they go on the road. From a Boston standpoint, there was a lot that went wrong on offense. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum looked pretty unreal in the first half. I think Tatum had somewhere close to 23, 22 points at halftime, but finished with 28. Brown only finished with 17. And then the other three starters, Al Horford, Rob Williams, and Marcus Marcus Smart combined to score just six points on 11 shots. So that's not great. On the Golden State thing, obviously, Steph Curry was splashing threes that only Steph Curry can hit. I thought Draymond Green was a pretty telling factor in tonight's victory. His box score is very similar to what you'd expect from Draymond. Nine points, five boards, seven assists. Didn't shoot a shitload, uh, but played his role for Golden State the way that we expect Draymond Green to play. His energy was pretty huge. He was getting right up in the jersey of a lot of Boston players, trying to throw them off their game. And I think as a whole, Golden State's defense probably was glossed over a little bit when JLo and I previewed the series and it's been glossed over overall by a lot of uh, popular media members. But I did notice that there was a lot of extra effort being utilized by uh, the Warriors in game two. And I think that that was probably the reason that they were able to go on that huge run in the third quarter, but then also kind of keep an even keel and close out the game. It was effectively over at three quarter time. Jordan Poole hit a near half court shot at the end of the uh, third quarter that gave them a massive lead. So series shifts back to Boston. Now, what do the Celtics have? I'll tell you what, I think they still have the momentum. I know that things didn't go great for them offensively, but 
Six points from Horford, Smart and Williams. You don't think that'll happen again. Marcus Smart had an off game, which he's known to do, but I expect him to bounce back a bit. And playing at home should be a good boost for the Celtics. I wouldn't be shocked. And I know this is a bit hypocritical because I just said, I think we'll get a long series, but I wouldn't be shocked if we saw Boston win both games at home. I still think that they are the better team. My original pick was dubs in seven, and I'm going to stick with that. But I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a really epic game three or four and the other one equaled a double digit win for the Celtics. My tip in game three is a Celtics win, and I hope it's the epic game that we do get. Sticking with the NBA, the second item on the agenda is Quinn Snyder, the Utah Jazz coach, or now former Utah Jazz coach. He stepped aside after eight seasons steering the Jazz, and he's obviously got a pretty decent reputation. He played college basketball at Duke. He worked his way up through the assistant ranks. I think he was with the Clippers for a while, and then the Lakers, maybe the Hawks before he got his Utah job. I can't remember exactly, but... He's definitely been a great coach for the Jazz. And during his time there, he's led them to a string of postseason appearances. Unfortunately, as we all know, it hasn't equated to much though. So they lost in the first round this year. They lost in the conference semis the year before that. And then we've obviously got uh, six straight appearances by the Jazz, but there's only three series wins in the eight years that Quinn Snyder was the coach. So you can't blame him from jumping ship because it seems like this Utah debacle is about to seriously unfold. Now that the coach has gone, Donovan Mitchell has, uh, quote, unsettled and unnerved. We might be seeing the beginning of the end for the Jazz. I think if you're going to go down that path, that makes sense. You haven't really achieved the success that they thought they were going to achieve in the last half a dozen or so years. The relationship between Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert seems to still be on thin ice and a bit tenuous. So I understand why. Utah is going to, well, the possibility of Utah spiraling downwards. And I think as a front office, Danny Ainge needs to start using his blower. He needs to start calling around the league, finding out what offers are on the table for Donnie Mitchell, finding out what offers are on the table for Rudy Gobert. Because if you're going to get rid of one of them, you may as well ditch both of your cornerstones. Let's be honest. You can't see Donovan Mitchell achieving a shitload without Rudy Gobert and Quinn Snyder next year. And if you get rid of Donovan Mitchell... Rudy Gobert is going to be a really wasted asset, in my opinion. So if you could head to the draft and maybe the Knicks come calling for Donovan Mitchell. I know that they've got a couple of young wings that might tantalize. You're probably not going to be able to pry someone like RJ Barrett away, but you could form a nice package around the 11th pick that the Knicks currently hold. And then a couple of other of their young talents. At least it's something for Donnie Mitchell. Uh, I want to personally see Rudy Gobert head to Dallas. I don't know if there's salaries that could make that deal be pushed through. Charlotte Hornets could be someone that bites the bullet and really enters the sweepstakes for a serious center. So watch this space. The rumor mill is about to ramp up. And I think from a Utah perspective, we could see the jazz blow up. To Paris, we go for the third item of business. So I want to discuss the French open and mainly the success of Rafael Nadal. We saw him defeat Casper Rudd, rude, rude. I think it's rude, something like that. I did watch last night's game, but I failed to notice Casper much on the court, I will admit, uh, because Rafa, the main man, the star of the show, he was all systems blazing, all cylinders blazing. He uh, captured his 14th French Open title, which is clearly a record for the most single Grand Slam wins at a, any event. 
He now has 22 Grand Slams all time. He's put a little bit of daylight between the likes of Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic, both of whom have 20 wins to their name. But in fourth place is Pete Sampras, who has 14 Grand Slam victories in his tennis career. So Rafa has as many wins at the French Open as fourth place all time does in total Grand Slams, if that made sense. I think that made sense. A lot of people, obviously, now that Rafa's won another chip, or chip, I'm calling it a chip. You get what I mean. Now that he's got his 22nd Grand Slam, the GOAT question is going to be asked. Personally, I think that Roger Federer is the tennis GOAT. Maybe that's because when I was watching him play during the early teens or the tens, whatever that decade's called, and the late noughties, that he was unequivocally the best player on the planet. No one could touch him, including Rafa, unless it was on clay. But Novak Djokovic, obviously, in the past 10 or so years, has put his name into the mix. And I think Rafa's kind of just been teetering along. Hasn't He's obviously a great tennis player in his own right, don't get me wrong. But he hasn't generated the same amount of fanfare or the same amount of buzz, personally, I don't think, as the other two. He hasn't been as much of a mainstream star. That being said, there are corners of the world and tennis fans out there that absolutely adore Nadal and his quintessential uh, left-hand forehand will see him go down as perhaps the greatest male tennis player or the greatest tennis player ever. I think just because of the number of titles he does have, you can't really use that as the breaking point. I think you can view it in a similar vein that I view the whole LeBron, Michael Jordan debate. If you want one of those two dudes to go and win you a basketball game, just one game, who are you picking? You're in the playground. You got the first pick. You can pick LeBron or you can pick MJ. Everyone that wants to win is picking MJ. If you're playing doubles and you're playing with your sibling and one of you gets to pick Rafa and one of you gets to pick Roger, you're probably picking Roger. And if you do get Rafa, you're obviously still feeling great, but you probably would prefer Roger. Maybe that's just me and maybe I'm a little bit Federer bias. And again, Novak uh, is being a bit discredited in this combo, but just because Rafa's now won his 22nd Grand Slam title, doesn't mean that he's automatically the GOAT. Hopefully, we can still see another few uh, title runs from Rafa, Roger, and Novak. Obviously, Djokovic still has a couple of years left compared to the other two lads, but I'll be very intrigued to see when those three are done, just what the all-time Grand Slam ledger looks like. Fourth item of business is the Gold Coast Suns. JLo and I talked a little bit about their run home on the Wednesday podcast, and after a pretty impressive 11 goal win against North Melbourne. I don't see why they won't surge towards the finals. Now it's something that obviously the Suns haven't achieved in their history yet. And in the past, their second half of the season has really been what's let them down last season after the bye, they only went three and eight 2020 was a bit of a lost cause. And they only won five games in that year, 2019, they were three and one after the first month, only to then lose about 17 or 18 games in a row to end of the season. So the ball is in their court. The Gold Coast Suns can play finals if they take care of business. A lot of people are talking about, myself included, about how few finalists they have to play or top eight teams. But there's not a lot of easy beats left on their agenda. They still get to play North and West Coast, depending on how the fixtures pan out. One or maybe both of them you expect to be at home. But they've got some other tougher opponents as well. Brisbane and Geelong are on the agenda. And then they've got Essendon, you'd feel confident going into that game. But Hawthorne, even Adelaide, you could maybe go in with a bit of confidence. They're not exactly world beaters. 
But you got Port Adelaide, Collingwood, Richmond, all mixed into that calculation. They're six and six right now. I feel like they're probably going to go six and six to run the slate against this group. 12 wins might not be enough to make the finals. We've talked about in the past how teams usually on that 12, or they finish 12 and 10, sorry, that's probably not good enough to get there. So they would have to, well, of their remaining 10, they would have to win six to get to that point. So I don't know. It's going to be bloody tough. I can see that there's a lot of optimism around them. And I do want to see the Gold Coast Suns do well. I think Stuart Jew deserves a lot of praise. Jared Witts is, in my eyes, an all-Australian contender at the moment. He's leading the league in hitouts, and he has been colossal for them in the middle. We had Ben King go down in the preseason, and their forward line has still looked like it's clicking on all cylinders. So there are things to like about the Gold Coast Suns. They're third for total clearances, and as a team, they're fourth for inside 50s. So they are getting their hands on the ball in the middle, and they are trying to make teams pay when they push it inside 50. So... There is optimism around the Gold Coast Suns. They obviously are heading into their buy now. So this is a really good time for them to reset, understand the important task at hand because they come right out the buy against Adelaide and then they've got a trip to Port Adelaide and then a couple of other Collingwood, Richmond, Essendon games to follow. So if they come out and they win a couple of games in a row and they keep their momentum going to kickstart the second half of their season, spot in the top eight is theirs to lose. The final talking point is the AFL fantasy buy rounds. And I want to kind of discuss a little bit of the large fries and Cokes efforts in round 12, talk about some trade targets and then preview a couple of uh, cash cows that I'll talk in this week's AFL fantasy article as well. So my boys didn't go too bad. Actually, I was happy with the ways that the large fries and Coke performed. I personally, as a coach, probably, uh, let the boys down because I took the C off of Max Gorn. I had it sitting on him all week. I was going to lock him in. He was going up against Sydney. I didn't really feel uh, too dicey about Pete Laddams against Gorney. But of course, I fell victim to the Rolls-Royce tactic. Long listeners of the podcast will know that Jake and I have a bit of a tradition that when you bring in a big name or someone who you want to see go gangbusters, and usually it's a midfielder, you got to make them your skipper. It's much more fun that way to go on that roller coaster ride. And Tom Mitchell wasn't awful. He was my trade in for Nick Dacos, which stings a little bit, but got 112 as my skipper. So I'll take it, but would have been nice to get that 30 point boost from Max Gorn. That probably would have seen me hold my spot in the ranks. I scored 1823. So not awful by any means. I slipped back to 1546, which was about hundred, 110 spots backwards. That's okay, though. I've got 18 dots before trades this week, and I've got my heart set on snagging Josh Kelly. So talking about trade targets, the Giants gun midfielder is the form player in the comp at the moment. I do know that you have to fork up a lot of cash for him. I get it, but I think it's going to be worth it. He's currently the sixth most expensive player in the game at $908,000. But like I said, no one owns a better three-round average than Josh Kelly. And he is starting to find his mojo with a lot of disposals. He's had, if you look at his five round average, three of his scores, he's gone over 124 with another 120 mixed in there. So I've got a lot of faith that Kelly can be and will be a top eight midfielder to close out the year. And he's looming as a popular target for coaches if you've got the cash to try and facilitate a move. A little bit cheaper 
than Josh Kelly, you might have your eyes set on one of the Carlton Sams. Now, it depends on which line you want to strengthen, but I don't think that it's a terrible idea to go down the vein of chasing Sam Walsh or Sam Doherty. It's about $10,000 separating the two of them, and their numbers are actually nearly identical from an average standpoint. I think they're both also going to be top players at their respective positions. Doc is one of the best defenders behind Jaden Short and Crispy. And Sam Walsh, you can probably put behind the likes of Josh Kelly, uh, Clayton, Callum Mills. In the fourth spot, I could maybe argue for Neil or Brayshaw. But then right after that, I've got uh, my man Walshy sitting in the similar vein as your Parish, Rory Laird, Tuke Miller, whoever's vying for those last few spots in the top eight midfielders. So if you've got some cash, those are the routes I would go down. A bit cheaper still, Ollie Wines and Zach Merritt are generating plenty of interest for coaches. Personally, I prefer the Ollie Wines factor. I don't know why, but he feels like maybe it's just because of Merritt's struggles so far this year. But I feel like Wines is a bit of a safer scorer. He's only averaging 98 through 10 games. But granted, there's a 36 in there where he hurt himself. So that's obviously going to tilt the numbers away from his favour. He started the year really well. He had 102, 126, 111, was racking up touches for fun. But he hasn't really got going in recent times. Hopefully the week off, we'll see him recharge and come back into the fold at just over 800K. You could bite the bullet and maybe trade him in, but under the 800K price, which sounds barbaric to say, but Zach Merritt is sitting there ready for the picking. He has got quite a few low hundreds littered through his scorecard and a couple of nineties missed a couple of weeks with his uh, syndesmosis. I'm pretty sure it was a syndesmosis from memory earlier in the season, but he's healthy now. Seems like a risky dice roll, though, if you ask me. I don't know why, because Zach Merritt, we would pencil in as a 100-touch, uh, sorry, 115, 110-type player for years. I think most people would have said that in the preseason, myself included, but he hasn't really been delivering, and there is some doubt when it comes to trading for him. So tread carefully, maybe depending on your bank situation, that'll dictate which of those midfielders I've mentioned you might covet. If you want another versatile, uh, cheaper option though I think it's okay to target Brad Hill now he's averaged 82 on the season which is all right it's fine you probably don't want too many of those blokes in your team for the whole season but he's averaged 105 in his last three and that's off the back of two pretty big scores rolling into his buy he had 33 touches and nine marks against North in round 11 and then the week prior had another 30 touches and 10 marks when he went up against Adelaide so two teams that will give up a couple of marks and kicks and touches. And Brad Hill obviously has been known to uh, burn fantasy coaches in the past. Break even at just 34 though. You would think that he's going to go up in value over the buys and could potentially be a two, three week play. It comes with risk, obviously, but I don't hate the idea of going down the Brad Hill uh, path. And as a defender forward, I'll be honest, I'm kind of toying with the idea of doing it myself. I do want to get up to Josh Kelly I might have to sacrifice Zach Butters to do it, but it's a trade that I think is worthwhile. If not, though, I'm probably going to pivot and target someone a bit cheaper like Hill, who I believe will bounce upwards in value and provide me with a couple of decent scores in the second two buy rounds. Now, speaking of the buy rounds, obviously, is best of 18 players on the field, and there are quite a few popular players this week who are going to be sitting on the pine. A lot of the Bulldogs, Sam DeConing, who has been saving... Uh, a lot of people's benches, uh, keeping benches warm and obviously had a 
felt like he had better than his 50 odd that he had on the weekend played better than it anyway but again i digress popular players are going to be missing so who are you going to bring in if you can't afford to grab those blokes or you need money you're going to have to target some rookies and that's where mitch owens enters the conversation had his buy last week coming back for st kilda he's fresh off a 95 the week prior where he laid 10 tackles and kicked a pair of snags I don't expect him to go much higher than 65, let's say. Uh, who are the Saints playing? Let me quickly do my homework. Yeah, Brisbane at the Gabba is a tough ask, but then he's got Essendon at Marvel. So he could probably average 60 to 65 throughout those two games. And I think he's the number one rookie target. A lot of people are trading in Sam Durden as well, who is a mid-season draftee to the Carlton Blues. Obviously, their key position players have kind of been struck down by injury. We had Weedering go down, had Mackay at the other end of the field. And a lot of their key backs, uh, you know, aren't up and about. Mitchie McGovern, he's, I don't even know if he classifies as a key back anymore. But yeah, Carlton needs a bloke to come in and lock down some key forwards. And Sam Durden might be the one that gets the task. I am a little bit skeptical and a bit worried about targeting a bloke that traditionally is a key position backman but Durden can take an intercept mark he was on a AFL list before we saw him uh, I want to say it was 2020 he last played for North Melbourne or he made his last appearance but he had about 20 games in the system already so he's no scrub he knows how to AFL football but I don't know how many scores and how many fantasy friendly scores he's going to produce there might be a couple of 40s or 50s along the way but if you're sitting on your bench after the buy rounds obviously that might be okay he's averaged 61 so far this year in the sandful he's had about 15 touches and five marks which is you know state league key back numbers i don't know i'd feel much safer if he's named obviously uh targeting someone like jacob Ware. there is about a 60k price difference so your hand might be forced if you need that 60K to chase one of the players that I've already mentioned. But I think those two defenders are bound to be popular targets. And Whitfield seems like he's going to be back for GWS, which may make Jacob Ware miss the cut. If not, though, I probably have him as my second favourite trade target with Sammy Durden sitting at third. There aren't too many forwards that I would feel safe ticking off on trading in some people are doing a Elijah Hollands or maybe even a Jai Cully trade in mid forwards, basement price. There's no guarantees either of them are going to play in the near future. And I think considering we're literally just ticking over to the second half of the season, it's too early to be pulling moves like that. So I would stay steadfast, try and chase some value. If you really want, it's a bit of a, bit of a weird price, but you could even look at someone like Hugo Ralph Smith. It's, I know a bit of a left of field name, the Richmond dashing uh, mullet, but he's had all right games. I think his first game of the year, I can't remember if it was the sub or not against Carlton. I want to say he is, but he only had 25 points. Then he churned together a couple of sixties, had an injury when he got 40 and then bounced back before his buy returned to action against the Swans, kicked two snags for what it's worth, but managed to score another 60. So I reckon at nearly 400k, he's someone that should continue to go up in price, break even a 38. He might only make you 50 to 60k. He might make you close to 100k, but he will and should provide you with two pretty solid scores throughout the buy rounds as well. So there's a couple of blokes that you might want to keep your eye on, but hopefully when Thursday night rolls around and the teams are announced for round 13, 
there are a couple of basement rookies or at least sub 250k rookies uh, that we feel safe trading in. A lot of people, myself included, jumped on the Sam Butler adventure last week. And yeah, I don't know if I want to be uh, trading in too many other blokes who have similar ilk. And that is another episode in the books. Like I said, I will be discussing uh, all things sport from the week that was with JLo on Wednesday evening. I'll be doing another Friday round preview before we get into another weekend of fantasy footy. Good luck with your trades. Hopefully Thursday night is kind to us, but there will be a couple of rookies, I reckon, that bob up and hopefully give us some cash to chase another upgrade. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. We'll catch you next time.